You wake up at 4 a.m. The coal dust is still stuck in your eyelashes from the day before. 12-hour shifts are like that. All worth it to see those kids' faces at Christmas time. Just one big payday. One fat check to catch everything up. One day at a time. One block of coal at a time. What an amazing Easter weekend. Should you call in? One more day off would be nice. Can't do that, though. The boys need a little cheering up this week. Let's get it done. Nobody else will. These men didn't know there was one more day. One last hug. One last kiss goodbye. One last drive. That's because 29 coal miners lost their lives on April 5th, 2010 in Raleigh County, West Virginia after the worst mine explosion in 40 years. I am J.D. Belcher and this is UBB, A Coal Miner's Story, dedicated to those affected by the tragedy of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster. 29 men, 29 families, that's 29 funerals. The cries that went out, something I'll never forget, the hardest thing I've ever had to, had to watch happen. 29 men are now dead, simply because they went to work that morning so much grief and so much heartache and so many people just want an answer. You know, why? Chapter 1, Part 1, The Tragedy. The morning of the explosion was no different than the countless ones before for these men. Coal mining has evolved through the years, but the concept still remains the same. Show up, work hard, get paid. Now get paid well thanks to decades of labor workers, union workers, Appalachians and immigrants fighting for living wages. Better benefits including health insurance, pensions, paid time off, company vehicles are all now possible because of this. Coal miners used to get paid in company scrip, which was essentially a coal miner's credit card and how they were compensated before it was ruled illegal in 1938 thanks to the Fair Labor Standards Act. Companies would pay workers in this scrip, and they could only use this currency at the company store to buy necessities. Thanks to the many workers, families, friends, and blue-collar types that stood up against this oppression, though, coal mining now pays an average salary of over $68,000 per year. No higher education is required, just a high school diploma at most companies and an 80-hour certification course. That's it. Of course, there are other variables like who you know, and being in the right place at the right time. But there have been billions of tons mined in West Virginia, trillions of dollars made, and coal is still arguably one of the most important energy resources in the world today. West Virginia's governor, also a coal baron, just so happens to be the richest person in West Virginia as well, with an established net worth of over a billion dollars when he was elected. This in a state ranked 48 out of 50 states in economy stats, in a state where coal communities who built this nation, who won wars with the steel produced from the coal they were mining, still have crumbling infrastructure. West Virginia is ranked 50th in that category, by the way. Retired coal miners are struggling to breathe due to black lung and are still having to fight for their pensions. Companies are battling workers by busting apart unions, 
filing bankruptcy to avoid responsibilities while paying massive executive bonuses, cutting corners with safety until legislated not to do so, and even unspoken reprimands like sending an employee to night shift for expressing safety concerns, which happened to me early on with a non-union job I had, forcing workers to quit due to imposing harsher work conditions, and so on. But most of these facts are for another podcast. This is the story of 31 men their attempted rescuers, their families, their wonderful communities, and their loss. 29 of these men died that day, and two are forever altered by devastating effects from this explosion. First, you will hear from Mom Lynch, who worked at Upper Big Branch with his dad, William Roosevelt Lynch, who lost his life in the explosion. Well, I actually grew up in Minden. When I was little, we were still living with my grandmother until we finally moved down to Glen Jean and got a house of our own. And that was probably in, well, I was born in 76. And I think that's, that's the year that my dad started working in the coal mine. Everybody always gravitated towards my grandmother's house. You go outside after you eat breakfast and you come on when the street light come on. So that's how my childhood was. I spent a lot of time in the woods, a lot of time on the creek bank, just ripping and running as a kid, you know, having fun, skipping rocks, walking the creek, stuff you wasn't really supposed to do, but we did it. We had fun. Everybody made it out all right. Right. What was uh, what was William like as a, as a father? Oh, he was he was great. He was he could teach you anything, anything you want to know. He could teach you. Anything you want to do, he had he had some type of knowledge on it, and he was there. He he was caring. He he had, he, he cared a lot, and he just wanted the best for you. And and not only me, um, I mean all my friends there, they'll tell you the same thing. He, it, the way he looked after me, the way he looked after everybody. Tell me about the record collection. Like kind of where did how did that establish? As you've seen, he's he, he been collecting records for ever and ever. And like I said, he used to subscribe to the Jet magazine. And in the back, it, it'll tell you the new stuff that was coming out. And like I said, he used to mark it and track it as it go up, as it go down. If it come in, he'll put an in on it as new. Every week, he would go to the record store and he'd, he'd, he'd buy records. And like I said, every Sunday, it was... He'd put a record on, and after that one went over, he'd put another one on, and he'd put another one on, and just all day Sunday, just record gonna be playing. And that, I guess over the years, the, the collection just got so extensive <laughs> that he, times changed, and then CDs came out, and he started buying CDs the same way. Did you ever catch him singing to your kids? Oh, he, he sung all the time. All the time. And like I say, I... I he didn't sound bad, he, not at all. He actually could sing a little bit. And I guess he, he he just, he liked it. He liked it. Rick and I met in September of 1985. And we met in September, got engaged in December, and were married in July of 86. It was just we knew. Kim Lane was married to Richard Lane. Richard was 45 at the time of the explosion. It was also the day after Easter weekend, which is especially a big deal in the coal mines 
as it means you get two and even three days off in a row with some companies. And that was hard to come by in that industry. He enjoyed his job and he was a good boss. The weekend prior to the explosion was um, Easter weekend that year. And he was off. And that Friday, we had the long weekend as a family together. My son, at that time, my grandson was nine months old. They were looking at buying a farm. I got home from work, and his dad and I jumped in the car, and we all drove down there as a family and was looking at this and thinking, okay, this is kind of nice. Robbie will be happy down here, and he could farm and do his own thing, too. And we came back up here, and I'll show you pictures. That's when Rick took Brody on the tractor ride, and... It was just one of those weekends, and we kept him all night, Saturday night. Brody spent the night with us. We all got up Sunday morning, Easter morning, and we all went to church. And we all sat there together, and Rick held Brody the whole time we were in church. Well, when we came home from church, we went and he bought me a uh, an outdoor um, patio set for for Easter. And so he went and picked that up for me, and we came home, and he had told me, I don't, I think I'm going to take a personal day for Monday. I said, okay. So he gets on the phone and tries to call down to the mines. Didn't get anybody. And I said, well, isn't there somebody else you can call? And he said, yeah, I could probably call Grover. He said, but you know, I don't want to do that to my guys and not show up. That's the kind of boss he was. He didn't want to ask his men to do anything that he wouldn't do. If he was going to be off, he wanted to make sure everybody had the heads up he just wanted it. He just wouldn't do it. And that's probably my biggest regret is that I didn't say, just don't go, take a personal day. But hindsight's always twenty twenty. I never thought in a million years he'd never come home. Rick had told me a couple, three months before this, that he felt like he was probably just going to say he wanted transferred because he Felt like it was time for him to move on from UB because things weren't were what he thought they should be. I questioned him about the safety. I said, okay, like if something would happen, can you get out? I wanted to know for myself because I don't know. I guess just making sure how I wouldn't worry. He told me, yeah, it'd be fine. It's no problem. Everything's okay. Don't worry. So I didn't. And then that fatal day came and it's not been the same since. I didn't get out of my pajamas for five months after Rick died. Over here at the house that Rick and I lived in, that's where my son lives now. Um, um, I, uh, that whole week took a toll on me. You know, we, I get home on the 5th from work, you know, as a normal Monday on April 5th, 2010, I come home from work, I get home at 3.30. So I was home cooking dinner and doing our thing and making our plans to go out and do our taxes and we had our appointment and everything. And I'm home and I get a phone call from Rick's dad. And his dad says, have you talked to Rick yet? I said, no, I looked at my watch and I said, it's not time yet. Well, he didn't tell me why. So then I had another phone call one of the guys that used to work with Rick at Speed Mining. Well, Denny had called and said, have you talked to Rick? And I'm like, no, not yet. I said, of course, then I, my, my mind starts getting suspicious. What's wrong? Rick's dad called back and said, I think you need to call down to the mines because I had the phone number to the office at the mines at UBB because Rick had given it to me. He said, I heard something 
on the scanner that um, is concerning. And I said, okay, just call. He said, just call and check on him. So I call and the lady, I told her who I was. And the lady said, I think you need to come down to the training center. And my son comes flying up the driveway. I knew something was wrong then because he did not ever do that. I mean, dust was flying. He was coming up the driveway and said, let's go. So we get in Rick's work vehicle, which he had taken his big Dodge that day because I had his work vehicle. We headed down Route 3. Well, at that time, I was trying to stay calm and think, okay, I've had this call before. When Rick worked at Speed, he had a rock, like a rock fall on his neck, and they had called me and said, you need to come and uh, get Rick. He had had an accident. Okay, okay, that that was what was in my mind. He had had an accident. I'm just going to go get him. But, of course, I go into panic mode. (laughs) So we get down there, and they have all of us. I never thought I'd see so many people. They had all these families in the training center down there, and then they started giving us updates. Well, on the day of the accident, I was on my way to work, and usually he would be on his way from work. And it was always a little wide spot in the road that if he got there before I did or if I got there before he did, we'll pull over and we'll talk a little bit. On this particular day, when I got to the spot, I, I pulled over like I normally do, waited a little while, and I was like, well, I can't wait too much longer or I'm gonna be late going to work. So I continued on to work, didn't pass him, because normally we pass. In town, I usually waited to buy my stuff for lunch at the little convenience store or whatever it is down there by the mines. And when I went in, it was it was more than the usual people that be in there because it was kind of busy. I guess it was the only little store in town. And I was picking up my stuff, water and juice or a sandwich or something. And I heard them talking. It was like, well, y'all y'all hear about the, they, they said it was a roof fall at the mine. And I didn't pay it no mind. I roof fall with that, you know what I'm saying? Something like that, it, it happened on occasion, rib roll out or something or another. And when when it really caught my attention, a guy said, no, I don't think it was a, a roof fall. I think that was an explosion. I like an explosion. And they was like, yeah, they got all the entrances to the mine was shut off. And because, like I said, I worked outside. So once I get to the gate, I just pull on in and go ahead and start doing my job. And when he said the explosion, I just I just dropped everything. When I went out the door and went up to the mine, they wouldn't let me in. They wouldn't let me in. And at the time, my uncle was also working down at the mine. And I guess that's when I started hearing all the fire trucks and ambulance and all of that coming. And I was like, well, what's going on? What didn't happen? And he was like, yeah, the mine, it, it, they had a, they had a explosion. And then I got to running because I was the one that usually, you know, direct traffic in and out, dispatch. You know what I'm saying? Tell them when the roadway was clear, who could come, who could go, and stuff like that. So talking to my uncle, I was like, well, did did anybody get out? Did anybody come out or was anybody on the way out or, or anything like that? He was like, well, I don't know. So I guess everybody was in the dark at that point. 
You know, from that initial 911 call, I just started trying to, to gather resources. And there's a few other clips, and obviously this is probably one of the, the most powerful or significant ones to myself. But uh, this is when um, the, the man trip first arrived from uh, underground, and then you can hear the... David Hodges is currently serving as the director of EMS operations for the Charleston Fire Department and at the time was a first responder who arrived early on scene during the tragedy. He was responsible for organizing different stages of medical support, task training, and resources during the rescue operation. So the, the 911 call was, I can just about recite it, you know, 130 Frontier Street. And it was just, you know, we run mining emergencies for many years around here. I've always ran them, you know, parties are still exiting the mine. So we was trying to get some information. And there was no ambulances local at the time. Both of our ambulances were on calls. I believe one was in Beckley, one was in Charleston. So an hour away. I didn't anticipate nothing of this magnitude. We've ran numerous mine calls where multiple people injured, and it may turn out to be seven miners, but it's bumps and bruises, and nobody went to the hospital. So never anticipated this. And I, I remember getting out and, and speaking to to one of the guys from the company that was there, and hey, what's going on? And you know, he's like, I, I really don't know. And that really just irritated me because being locally and knowing working around these people and knowing how this works, I knew that he did know. Somebody knew, and, and actually, I think my words to him was. Well, there's not going to be one ambulance to come on his heel until I can figure out what's going on and somebody comes clean so we can know what we need to have here. That's when he, he told me that they had, you know, probably 30 people trapped. And I think his words, I really don't know what the hell's going on, uh, but it's not good. So to put this in perspective, David arrives on the mining site with minimal knowledge and hears that 30 men at least are still underground trapped in what now has been identified as an explosion. In a community with little resources, he now has to make quick decisions on what's needed to establish a home base for this rescue attempt. This doesn't just include caring for these men once they are hopefully found. This includes creating a safe environment to pull off the operation. Medical tents, food distribution, and supply tents for the rescuers. Who's going to direct traffic? What's the chain of command? What do we do in the event of fatalities? Where do family members go? What do the company employees do? How many ambulances are needed? This is a lot to take on, but thankfully, David has decades of training to tackle these difficult questions. That was one of my first gut punches, per se, that this is gonna be bad. I just, I really thought that, but deep down, I, I kept leaning on that. Hey, we've been here before. It's gonna be bumps and bruises. A bunch of guys gonna, they're tough coal miners. They wrap it in black tape and they go home, they go back to work. And I, and I was hoping deep down that that's what it was, was going to turn out to be. So I, I try to start gathering some resources. Still, he said he had 30, 30 miners. And, and I think I conveyed that back to the 911 center that we had probably 30 miners trapped. So, you know, and, and I called for, and I think for some reason, I may have called for just like 10 ambulances 
10 ambulances can handle many patients. You know, if you had a bunch of bumps and bruises, you could just double them up or whatever it took. Uh, it would be a mass casualty event, so we can sort of throw out some rules and make it happen soon. Remember turning my vehicle around, just getting it in position so we could have some access, and we was waiting to hear something, hoping some help was coming. And at any rural community uh, across this country, especially here in West Southern West Virginia, at four o'clock on a weekday, you go to any local volunteer fire department and try to see how much help you're going to get, and it's going to be minute. There's minimum people, people just not actively volunteering in our community. So resources were slim, and I, I knew that. Few minutes goes by, and I, I, you know, I remember turning around, and you could you could look into the entry there to mine in the portal, and, and you could see lights coming, and knowing again being working around it, uh, there's a man trip was coming out. A man trip is what takes the miners to and from work. So you have a coal mine. Well, where the act of mining is going on is deep within the coal mine. So this is a vehicle of sorts that can be by rail or rubber tire that transports the men and women to and from the work area. So what David is saying here is for the first time since he's been there, the man trip is coming back out, containing whether it be the miners or the rescuers or both. And as that man trip is coming out, it's sort of like, all right, well, that's good. There's activity. And then until it cleared the, the canopy, and you could see that uh, <laughs> it was full of people, but not many of them was moving. Uh, at this point, I'm still the only first responder that's there. I've taught for many years up at this point. I've always tried to be very progressive in, in the service and try to spread word and educate. So I immediately jumped into action and, and in this triage that we've all been taught from as first responders. And, you know, if you can hear me and you, you're involved, walk over and have a seat on the steps of the bathhouse. And there was there was one guy that sort of raised up out of there. And he, he's, he was the only one that walked. And uh, at this point, all the miners or are, are the workers there, you know, there was guys coming on duty or on into work. I started just grabbing folks and pulling them out. And and at this time, there was an ambulance coming up the hill. Um, one of our medics from Whitesville, he had grabbed an ambulance by himself. And uh, they, they was coming up the hill and backing up at this time. And then I remember seeing uh, the, another utility vehicle from the fire department coming up the hill. And I thought, all right, we'll help us on the way. So that was sort of a little deceiving. Yeah, there was a paramedic coming, and he was a huge asset. He was definitely helped with that. SUV, the other SUV that's coming from the fire department, it was uh, it's two junior firemen was in it, um, which young guys, uh, one of them was above 18, but one of them had never, uh, well, both of them had never done CPR on anybody. So that was, again, back to, oh, wow, here we go. I don't have much help. So we start pulling those guys out. The miners are pulling them out, and they're all doing CPR, and breathing for their brothers, much like any of us would do. We definitely don't want to see anyone pass, and uh, we're going to give anybody the benefit that we can. So, you know, we're just immediately overwhelmed. There was one patient that we could tell was breathing. So he was our priority uh, when you triage folks. He was in very critical condition, though. They grabbed him up and got him in the ambulance. Again, we just had one ambulance there. Others are coming, but again, they're 30 miles away. So we get treating that one guy, and I'm sort of stuck with these 
other folks that's not breathing or whatever. And these miners are doing their damnedest to save them. My mind's going a million miles an hour. And I just, I felt at one point I, I couldn't even catch a breath. And then, you know, but your training just keeps going and you're, you've been trained to do all this. So you're like, what am I going to do? I, I got to stop this because we don't have the resources. And what are we going to do if another group pops out and they're viable victims too? And I need all these workers. So, but then again, how am I going to tell these big, hard-working men, you got to quit and let your brother die. Uh, so we had, I had one heart monitor left there. I grabbed that heart monitor and went around to all of them that was there that they were still doing CPR. Once I put them on the monitor to see that they weren't just unresponsive or truly not breathing, and, and so I threw them on the heart monitor and went around each one. And it was like, as I, as I did that, as I went around and put them on the heart monitor, it made it so much easier for me to put these guys to work doing other things because when someone passes in the ER, uh, you see the flat line go across the monitor. And it was like every one of those miners that was helping, they saw that and they knew there was nothing else to be done. So they would all back away and on to the next, and on to the next. And then they knew what I knew, that there was no bringing this person back. So I immediately put those guys to work because now we have nervous energy guys there that just went from zero to 200, and then I had to put the brakes on them. And, you know, I was like, hey, here's what we need to do. We need to get these guys up off the ground. And, and we need I need an area over here secured. So we wanted a little generic, if you would, more per se. And uh, I told a guy there, and it was like he barked out orders, and everybody just went over him. They started cutting mine curtain, pretty much made a little area so we could move those deceased miners over there. Because, again, at this point, there was still no communications. I convey that. At this point, I think I called for 30 ambulances. And so many people has you know asked me, like, why'd you call for so many? So it wasn't just about those miners. Now I knew that there was a rescue operation and we had a really dangerous atmosphere under there. So we had a lot of minor rescuers that was going to be going under. That first night on Friday, they started giving us the updates and I don't remember who did the announcing. They came out and they read off names of the ones they had already that was found that were deceased and that's my heart just dropped I'm like no no this can't be happening and as I was sitting there I was watching and listening and I kept remembering when I watched Sago on TV Sago was another mine disaster which took the lives of 12 miners in 2006 this is happening to me it's not just on TV I had to really wake up and remember that this is this is real life right now because it was like a nightmare. So they read off the names, and I think Steve Harrow was one of them. He was one of the early ones that was found, and my heart just sunk for the families. So I guess starting out, tell me about, tell me about Stevie. Okay, he was born in 1970. We were 16 months apart in age. I was older. Betty Harrow remembers her brother, Stephen Harrow whose life was lost in the explosion at Upper Big Branch. He was one of those people that could tell you you were a piece of shit and smile about it the whole time he was saying it. <laughs> right. And everybody would laugh with him. Mm -hmm. And all the guys that I've talked to since then talked about how great of a guy he was. I mean, he, he loved his guys. He loved working. 
His little boy was his life. He went to, in the military when he got out of high school. He was in there during Desert Storm. And he came back here and he worked at a car lot with my brother for a while. And then he went to Vance Auto. And he just wasn't making enough money. And he had a family to raise. So he went in the mines. So imagine you arrive at a location where 29 miners' families, and even more than that, because many of the families that were there were friends of these miners and also had family members that worked there as well. Imagine them all being at one place, not knowing what's going on. My God, as soon as you hit that first tip over there at Marshfork Elementary, all the way down to where Stevie's mine was, Oh, God, oh my God. Cars everywhere. Training center, I think is what it was oh, called. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I went in the big door where they had it open where everybody was in the room everybody was in. Well, I couldn't find none of my family, and I knew damn well they were down there ahead of me. I saw my family sitting in this room with another family, which I knew the family. And I walk in there, and I'm standing there at the door, and my sister Linda comes to me, and she said, Daddy. And I heard her say first to that guy who was telling everybody, um, who's one of the vice presidents, she said, are you sure that it was him? He said, yes, ma'am. They have already identified him. And Linda came over to me and told me that Stevie wasn't coming home. Mm. And next thing I remember, I remember sliding down the door frame. And when I came to, a state trooper was wiping my face with a washcloth. Mm. And I still had the washcloth. And I... Yeah, it's something we should have never had to go through. It was preventable. It hurt. It hurt. And we sit there for a while, me and my uncle, which was my dad's brother. And we decided to, when when nothing they was letting us do or anything, they they wasn't telling us anything. So uh, immediately I was thinking, man, I gotta, I gotta go find my mama. And by this time I was, he was driving me back up the mountain and we met them on the way down. And it was the hardest thing ever in life. Tell my mama what that is, make it. I mean, I've been through some things, but that right there. Uh, I don't wish that on nobody. Mama just just melted. And I'd have felt better if it was anything that I could do to make her feel better or help her out, but it wasn't nothing I could do except hold her. That's it. I mean, I could try to tell her it was going to be okay, but no, it wasn't okay. wasn't okay at all. Now I'm going to introduce you to Jeannie Sanger, who is the sister of Benny Ray Willingham, who was one of the 29 miners who passed. He was also one of the first seven announced to the families of the deceased. So was he kind of a practical joker or just was a really easy person to kind of be comfortable around and talk oh, to? Oh, yes, that. He was, oh, goodness. He was just hilarious. He just had nicknames for people. He just made everything funny and just, he was just the life of the party, you know. 
just that kind, friendly. And even like at his funeral, there was um, a young boy that none of us even knew. And he was sitting there just bawling, crying. So I can't even remember somebody from the family went over and, you know, put their arm around him and and asking, how did he know Benny? And he said, well, he he picked me up hitchhiking. My car had broken down. No, my car I'd ran out of gas. Sorry, ran out of gas. And um, he took me to get some gas, filled my car up with gas. And gave me money to get me something to eat. And that was just like the week before. What was his personality like? It was always positive. No, never no negativity. Austin Canada, who is Benny's grandson, remembers his grandfather. Always seen the best in people. Uh, he'd give the shirt off his back to you. He's actually uh, gave people uh, vehicles, you know, some of his work cars. He'd, he'd go get another work car and he'd, He'd seen somebody that was in need of a vehicle, and he would just give it to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just couldn't really find a better guy. Do you remember how you found out about the the accident? Yeah, man. It was uh, I was on spring break, probably fourteen. I was turned fifteen that summer, and every spring break I was in middle school. My other grandpa always go hunting and fishing with him, so we was up in Pocahontas County, and there's no cell phone service at all up there. And uh, no radio stations either, really. That Monday morning, we woke up there at the, at the camp and ate. We was pulling out of the campground to go fish. And I noticed as soon as we pulled out, my grandma, not Edith, but my other grandma, and my mom and my aunt had called in. They, we passed them. And I was like, what? Well, you know, it's strange to be up here that early. We're four hours from home. And then we pulled over and they turned around and come back. My mom ran up to me and hugged me. And she told me that they had a Actually, at the, at the mines, and Papa didn't make it out. Mm. We we went back and uh, we loaded the camper up, hooked up, and came home. And uh, I went straight uh, straight up there to uh, him and my mom's house, and where all the family was. And we kind of just uh, everybody just gathered there for the rest of that week while the while they was trying to get everybody else out of mines and stuff. Right. We were eating dinner, like I said, and his dad called, and he obviously had the news on, and he called Bobby and said, um, there's been a mining accident at UBB, and he said, isn't that one of the mines that you go to? Because my husband works worked for a company that sold parts to mines. So he said, isn't that one of the mines you go to? And he said, yes. So I immediately, you know, hit my knees, you know, and started praying. And um, so we took off. I don't know how to describe it. I don't want to minimize in any way my precious, precious, precious mother. But losing Benny was just so, that's the only one we've ever lost, you know, there's six of us. Mm-hmm. And I mean, our little mama, she raised all of us by herself. You know, my dad wasn't even in the picture, you know. Right. And she raised all of us by herself and stood strong and, you know. Wow. 
Raised six kids by herself. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. Oh, she was an amazing woman. Yeah. And Benny told her when he, he was getting ready to retire, he was like six months, six months, six weeks from retiring. He would have been 62 in like six weeks. Oh. And he said, I'm, I'm retiring for you, Mom. You're never going to have to worry. You know, who's going to take you to the doctor? Who's going to take you to the grocery store? Who's going to carry your groceries in? And who's going to help you go? Get, who's going to take you to get your medicine or anything like that? Because he just lived, you know, maybe two or three miles up the road. And he said, Mom, I'm retiring for you to help you. So now I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of key events based on a report created by David McAteer. He was commissioned to do this by Governor Manchin as an independent investigation. On April 5th, 2010, so day shift crew of miners began to arrive at UBB by 7 a.m. At least 45 miners were underground and two of the long wall crews were on their sections. At 2.30 p.m., Mike Ellswick reports by telephone to fireboss Scott Halstead the CH4 and oxygen readings, but also records that conveyor belts have too much accumulated coal and need rock dust. So these calls are pretty standard for coal mines, nothing out of the ordinary, but I need you to keep in mind what rock dust is. It's basically pulverized limestone, and it's sprayed across the walls and the bottom which is the floor of the underground mine to essentially eliminate the risk of coal dust explosions. It also eliminates potential instances of black lung disease as it keeps that dust down. Think of it as a heavy blanket going on top of this coal dust to keep it down. Longwall headgate operator Rex Mullins calls out that the section is still down but should be operating within 10 minutes. At 2.40 p.m., Longwall section foreman Richard Lane calls out a pre-shift report to Kevin Medley reporting the CH4 and oxygen readings. So in case you're wondering, mines have to call out these reports because if a confined space's oxygen concentration surpasses 23.5%, the space is too oxygen rich and could result in the ignition of combustible gases. Now for all day, the CH4 reading was 0% and the oxygen level was 20.8%, so you'll know. At 2.42 p.m., Rex Mullins says they are running coal and the shear is going to tell. Shear going to tell basically means that the shear is the actual mining machine and tail is the section that the machine is going to. At 2.58 p.m., James Woods, operating the man trip with the tailgate 22 crew, calls the dispatcher for a road from break 78. At 2.59 p.m. and 38 seconds, the crew cut power to the long wall by disconnecting the shearer manual stop button. At 3.01 p.m. on April 5th, 2010, an explosion erupts through the mine, blasting debris out of the portals and lasting for several minutes. The carbon monoxide monitoring system alarms and mine fan records show a major disruption to the ventilation. Shortly after the dispatcher, Greg Clay calls Performance Coal President Chris Blanchard at the Marfork office. Blanchard tells Jonah Bowles, who's the Director of Safety at Marfork Coal, to call the MSHA and West Virginia Office of Miners Health, Safety, and Training emergency hotlines and report an air reversal on the belt line CO 50 to 100 ppm. Now that's basically a carbon monoxide reading and ppm stands for parts per million. 50 to 100 parts per million for anyone that's potentially alive after the blast 
will develop flu-like symptoms, headaches, fatigue, drowsiness, and even vomiting. Over 100 is even worse with severe symptoms like confusion, intense headaches, brain damage, and ultimately coma and even death. Now, in risk of being hyperbolic with this carbon monoxide parts per million explanation, at 200 parts per million, you may already experience mild headaches, nausea, weakness, and dizziness after two to three hours. At 400 parts per million, you may have already experienced major frontal headaches within one to two hours, which could put you in a critical condition. At 800 ppm, you may already have convulsions, dizziness, and nausea in 45 minutes. This could render you unconscious in two hours. Prolonged exposure within two to three hours could lead to death. At 1600 ppm, you may have already experienced severe headaches, vomiting, nausea, and dizziness in 20 minutes. Prolonged exposure for about an hour could lead to death. Back to the timeline. Now, to give you an idea of how much this increased throughout the day, at 10.30 p.m., the carbon monoxide readings on Headgate 22 at Crosscut 3 are at 600 parts per million and 867 parts per million. Back to the timeline. Six performance coal personnel enter UBB from the Ellis portal. Four others enter from the UBB portal. Now the portal is just a structure surrounding the immediate entrance to a mine. So that's basically stating there's two entrances that the rescue teams entered from. Now I'm gonna take a quick break here from this timeline to introduce you to Bill Tucker, who was inspector at large for the Southern region for the West Virginia Office of Miners Health, Safety and Training during the time of the Upper Big Branch mine explosion. He's going to describe just how big this mine was so you can kind of picture what these rescuers were getting ready to walk into. How big uh, How big was the mine? Well, there's miles and miles of entryway. I don't really know how to describe to give it justice on how big it was. They had been there since about the mid 90s, early 90s. There was a lot of area inside the mine that had already been mined, a lot of long wall panels that had been completed. At that time, they had three continuous minor sections and a long wall section operating. In the blast area, what we considered the blast area, from 78 cross cut in by just the the entryways and you know it's like going through a house you know you got you got hallways and you go off into a room and but the different entryways and cross cuts i think it was like over 50 miles when you actually figured out the distance that uh, was the focus of our investigation but we didn't actually get started with investigation up until the end of june but is a very large mine. Now, jumping back a little bit and going to the West Virginia Office of Miners Health Safety and Training report, they record that shortly after the explosion, 10 employees from UBB entered the mine. One group of six men, Patrick Hilbert, Chris Blanchard, Jason Whitehead, Jack Rolls, Everett Hager, and Wayne Persinger. They entered at the Ellis portal on a battery-driven man trip on rail. The other group consisting of four men, Rick Foster, Gary May, James Walker, and Berman Cornett, entered the mine from the North Portal. Around the same time, Timothy Blake, one of the two survivors riding on the number 22 tailgate section man trip that was in the explosion area, began exiting the mine on foot. He traveled approximately 20 crosscuts. Now, I'm not sure about the exact length, but according to the map, it looks like the average crosscut length is around 11 feet. 
and I've asked some underground coal miners and it seems that the standard length of these crosscuts are anywhere from 15 to 18 feet according to them. So that means Timothy walked at least 200 feet and could have been almost 400 feet in one of the largest explosions the coal mining industry has ever seen. He stopped when he saw the lights of another man trip coming into the mine. This was the man trip that had entered from the Ellis portal. Now upon reaching Mr. Blake, the man trip stopped. One employee, Patrick Hilbert, remained with the survivor and the man trip. The others proceeded on foot near Crosscut 67 where they located the other eight miners. Jack Rolls ran back to the man trip where Mr. Blake and Mr. Hilbert were located and stated that the man trip was needed at their location. Mr. Hilbert then proceeded in by with the man trip. Now in by and out by basically means this. In by means they are going in the direction of the working face. Out by means they are leaving the mine and it's all based according to where they are working. Now when they got there, the eight miners were then loaded onto the two man trips and driven to the surface. Chris Blanchard and Jason Whitehead continued to advance into the mine. After traveling toward the surface a short distance, those that were exiting the mine were intercepted by men who had entered from the north portal. They all boarded the man trips with the victims and all three man trips traveled to the Ellis portal. These man trips arrived at the Ellis portal at approximately 4.45 p.m., which is where David Hodges spoke of seeing the man trips for the first time. There were only two survivors in the explosion, Timothy Blake and James Woods, both found on that initial rescue mission. The names of the seven miners who were deceased were eventually released to the families, and they are as follows. This is also how the West Virginia Office of Miners Health, Safety, and Training numbered the victims. And before I read this off too, I want to credit ubbminersmemorial.com for the description of these men and who they were. This will be followed with a 29-second moment of silence. 23rd victim is William R. Lynch, shuttle car operator. He was 59. He resided in Oak Hill and worked in the mines for more than 30 years while also working as a substitute teacher and basketball, football, and track coach. He also served as a devotional leader and praise team leader at the Pleasant Valley Baptist Church in Minden. Survivors include his wife, Geneva, son, Mon, and daughter, Miki Rogers. 24th victim is Carl C. Akerd, roof bolt operator. He was 52. His nickname was Pee Wee. He had worked in the mines for 34 years and was a proud member of the Old Man Crew at the Upper Big Branch Mine. He enjoyed fishing with his sons, working in the yard, driving his tractor, and being pawpaw to his two grandchildren, Chase and Cameron. He is survived by his wife, Joyce Lynn, and sons, Cody and Casey. 25th victim is Benny R. Willingham, roof bolt operator. He was 61. He lived in Corrine and had been a coal miner for 30 years and was five weeks away from retirement. He was a Vietnam veteran of the U.S. Air Force. At his funeral, Benny was remembered as a generous and religious man who was known for random acts of kindness. He is survived by his wife, Edith May, daughter, Michelle McKinney, sons Jody and Patrick Canada, and his mother, Cleo Roach. 26th victim is Robert E. Clark, continuous minor operator, and he was 41. He lived in Beckley and was described by friends as a caring person who never met a stranger. He enjoyed spending time with his family, riding his motorcycle, fishing, hunting, restoring vehicles, golfing, working with wood and boating, and he is survived by his wife, Melissa, 
and son, Stephen Robert Clark. 27th victim is Jason M. Atkins, roof bolt operator. He was 25. He lived in Foster and was a 2003 graduate of Sherman High School, where he won all state honors in football and baseball. He served as a member of the Racine Volunteer Fire Department and was an avid West Virginia University sports fan. And his survivors include his wife, Amanda, his parents, Robert and Shireen Bowles Atkins, and his brother, Chris. 28th victim is Stephen J. Hara, production foreman. He was 40. His nickname was Smiley, and he resided in Cool Ridge. His description was as a thoughtful man who would always offer a helping hand. He was a veteran of the U.S. Army and enjoyed hunting, fishing, and playing cards. He was devoted to his wife, Tammy, and six-year-old son, Zach. And the 29th victim is Deward A. Scott, shuttle car operator. He was 58. He lived in Montcole and was an avid outdoorsman who loved to hunt and fish. He was a veteran of the U.S. Army and is survived by his wife, Chrissy Lynn, daughter, Jennifer Ann, and son, Daniel Allen. Thank you for joining us on this journey through UBB, a coal miner's story. This episode, deeply rooted in the narrative of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster, was narrated by Nora Belcher and me. We extend our sincere appreciation to Eric Robbins and Jordan Waldron, who composed the music to help convey the gravity and emotion of this tragic chapter in mining history. As we continue to explore and understand the multifaceted story of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster, we invite you to listen to all three chapters of our series. It's important to remember that this podcast is a non-profit endeavor crafted with the sole purpose of shedding light on this significant event. All recordings and materials have been utilized under the Fair Use Act for journalism purposes to ensure that the story of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster is told with the depth and respect it deserves. Learn more about this podcast by visiting UpperBigBranch.com. Please be aware that the content and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast producer and do not represent any official stance or viewpoint on any other individual entity. They are provided for informational and educational purposes only.